Can you talk about Warren? What's he like in person? Oh, he's a very normal person. You know, mm. he, he's just, he's funny. He has a very <laughs> good humor. You know, he's always thinking of something. If mm. he, if he's not discussing something with you, his mind is someplace else. He's thinking, or he's reading. Very often when we, because we always stayed at his house when we'd go to Omaha, if he wasn't at the office when he'd be home, he'd be watching TV. Very down to earth. Very down to earth, waiting for us to bring him his hamburger. (laughs) (laughs) How is Charlie in person? Is he more chatty than he is at the Berkshire meeting? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) definitely more chatty than he is at Berkshire. He's a really funny guy. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. I'll keep it short. If you want to get in touch with me, head over to my website, Bogomil Baranowski, where I read your emails and reply to all. And I even offer Zoom calls to you, my listeners. If you want to follow my essays, go to Substack. If you're curious about my last book, search for Crisis Investing. If you want to keep up with Talking Billions, subscribe, follow, and please share it around. It means the world to me. There's no marketing budget behind the podcast. There's no ad revenue. It's all word of mouth and genuine curiosity, yours, mine, and that of our guests. On to the show. Just a quick reminder, I'm the host of the show, but I also work for a registered investment advisor. This episode is for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. My views are personal and not those of the firm. Any securities mentioned are for illustrative purposes and are not recommendations. Investing involves risks. Please consult a financial advisor. Full disclosure can be found in the notes and at the end of the episode. We have two guests today, Mary Buffett and Chloe Lin. And this is the 60th episode and the first anniversary of Talking Billions, a very special conversation to celebrate what has been a wonderful journey of discovery, learning, and growth. So many lessons, so many new and old friends on the show, and so many of you listeners not only diligently listening to all episodes, but even more so reaching out and sharing your worries, successes, challenges, and stories with me. Thank you. Back to our guests. Mary Buffett is a best-selling author, international speaker, entrepreneur, political, and environmental activist. Chloe Lin is an international speaker, investor, and president of Buffett Online School in Japan. Chloe and I recorded an interview a few months ago, and she was kind enough to arrange this conversation, spanning three time zones and all the way around the globe. Mary Buffett's first book, Buffettology, co-written with David Clark in 1997, was an immediate New York Times and Business Week bestseller. Since that time, all seven of Mary's books have been bestsellers. Mary Buffett appears regularly on television as one of the top finance experts in America, including CNN Business News, CNBC, Parlunch, 
Bloomberg News, Fox Business News, MSNBC's Headliners and Legends, and BBC News. She has appeared around the world as a principal speaker at some of the world's most prestigious organizations. Mary Buffett has worked successfully in a wide range of businesses, including extensive work as a consultant to a number of Fortune 500 companies. Mary is the proud mother of three successful children and lives in California. Mary's book, Buffettology, has had a big influence on me early on in my career, and I've gone back to it over the years. It's a great study of Warren Buffett's investment approach. Chloe is an international speaker and has been invited to travel around the world. She's also the president of Buffett Online School in Japan and has also been featured in Singapore's official Chinese newspaper, sharing her experience on how to invest safely as a female investor and how to achieve consistent results from the stock market. Together with her team from the next level, they have trained over 100,000 students across the world. She's also one of the fast-growing content creators on TikTok with more than 200,000 followers for her channel, Arigato Investor. Today, we have a lively discussion about Mary's early experience with investing. She shares stories of Warren Buffett gifting stocks to family members for Christmas and lessons from the experience her first exposure to investing, her first stock. Mary shares what Warren is like in person, his humor, personality, and more. We talk about what makes a great company. Mary shares her insight about the aspects of the business worth examining before investing. We touch on Mr. Market and being a disciplined investor while taking advantage of the pessimism and panic of other participants in the market. Mary highlights the importance of big brands. She also shares how Warren and Charlie handle mistakes. Stay tuned until the end when she tells us about her definition of success. Please help me welcome to this anniversary 60th episode of Talking Billions, Mary Buffett and Chloe Lin. Nice to meet you, Mary. It's early morning for you. It's yeah. evening for Chloe and it's morning for me a little later at 10 a.m. So thank you both of you for joining me at a you know, peculiar time for you uh, during the day. So I appreciate it. We, thanks, we are super thankful for you to invite us to be here as well. So Chloe and I recorded a few months ago, we had a wonderful conversation and Chloe was kind enough to include you, Mary, and create this opportunity for, for the three of us to talk today. I'm going to jump right in and you know that I like to ask about childhood and upbringing if you indulge me and I'm always curious how that time of your life you think influenced your relationship with money and then developed your curiosity in investing in particular. You know, it's very interesting. Um, I hadn't really thought about this until this question came up, but my childhood didn't really have much to do that I recall about money per se. I mean, my father was a a, a, a contractor. He built houses and everything. And um, I, I remember my family upbringing was more about family, food, you know, <laughs> every Sunday we would go to my grandfather's house. Everyone did, you know, that was kind of what my, uh, that, that was what my child was really about. There was very little to do with money. It's, it's interesting. Wow. I think Larry is super blessed to have a childhood that there's no need for worry for money. That's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, maybe my parents worry about it. I'm sure they did. <laughs> does. But uh, you know, my father always worked. My mother didn't until she was later in life. But when she was married to my father, she never worked. Uh -huh. was, was there a, 
a special unique incident that inspired you to start investing? I guess I would have to say, yeah, I mean, it was being married to Peter and having Warren Buffett as my father-in-law. I, I really didn't think about investing before that. You know, we were I was just living my life, spending money, saving money, but not investing. Mm -hmm. But Warren really um, gave us that idea, you know, um, and he really gave it to us because he used to give us money for Christmas and um, we'd always spend it. And then one year, instead of money, he realized that we spent it. He gave us stock. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which, we could, which we could sell but it was uh -huh. more difficult but i realized that we didn't sell it how much more valuable it became and i imagine it came with a story he would explain why that particular stock or he would let everybody discover why it made sense for them to hold on to it yeah no stories he he just <laughs> gave it to you and he didn't really say much at all uh -huh. you know um, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't a, a teacher in that way, you know, um, he just, uh, he was just who he was, you know, it was just like that. So were you shocked when you first received a stock instead of, you know, the usual money and you're like, <laughs> oh, what am I going to do with this? And then, then you start tracking the stock price and, and that's how you eventually decide to keep it and buy more or... No, I wasn't really shocked because I knew he didn't like that we spent the money that he gave us. In those days, I don't know why, you know, it was it, we didn't think about selling the stock. We're just like, oh, OK, so we got stock. We just held on to it and then realized, wow, it's becoming more valuable. You know, <laughs> so then every year we would be like wondering what is he going to give us next? <laughs> um, but, and then I realized that every time he gave us stock, we should buy more of it. <laughs> that was the lesson. Do you remember by any chance the very first stock that you either bought or received this way? Or the one that's memorable or the one that comes back to you that you maybe started to pay attention and you thought, oh, this is actually worth holding. I want to say Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was one of them. And then Berkshire Hathaway, B. Of course. Yeah. But Coca-Cola was in so many stories that he shared over the years. And I feel, I feel like it's a brand that everybody can relate to, no matter where they come from in the world. And it's just a very powerful brand that people know what it is. You don't have to explain much. Yeah. I mean, that alone tells you that it's a great company. I mean, just the the idea that everyone knows everyone all over the world. You're right. Mm -hmm. You know, what other product can you actually say that about? I mean, Apple, Coke, Hershey's. A handful. Yeah. I'm curious, was it a paper certificate that he would gift or would it be... In a, in a brokerage account kind of gift. Was it a physical certificate that you could walk home with? Uh, no, 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 it was no. just, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I've heard stories how in some families they would give paper certificates and, and the kids felt like they have something they can hold on to, they can frame it, they can put it on the wall and they realize all that's framed on the wall 
I think Lauren Templeton was telling me the story, how she would receive paper certificates. And then she realized all that's hanging on the wall, actually, it's worth quite a bit of money. <laughs> and, and the fact that it was in a frame made it harder to sell. So okay. an additional step not to, not to get rid of it. Can you talk about Warren? What's he like in person? I'm curious to hear and if you're willing to share. Oh, sure. I mean, he's a very normal person. You know, mm. he, he's just, uh, he's funny. He has a very mm. good mm. humor and um, very nice. You know, I mean, he's always, you know, he's always thinking of something. If mm. he, if he's not discussing something with you, his mind is someplace else. He's thinking or he's reading. Um, very often when we, because we always stayed at his house when we'd go to Omaha, um, if he wasn't at the office when he'd be home, he'd be watching TV, talking to Mrs. Catherine Graham at the time, <laughs> live, or um, yeah, waiting. very down to earth. Oh yeah, very down to earth, waiting for us to bring him his hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> well, he talks about himself as a business analyst, not a securities analyst. And you talk about it in your books. And I, I really like that idea. I picked up the book One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch when I was in college. And it really opened my eyes to the world of investing. And the one, if there was one big idea from that book is, for me, was that stocks are small pieces of businesses. And I think it completely changed my mind. It's not just a ticker and a price, but there's an actual business, whether it's Coca-Cola or Apple. Can you talk about that distinction between being a business analyst and just a, or only a securities analyst? You know, when you realize that every security, like we said, it is a business, mm -hmm. generally speaking, it boils down to a business. So I think it's much um, easier to understand if you look at it as a business, you can say, okay, what is this business doing? What is the management about? And these are things that I think people really have to look at. You know, look into the past. You can see online now, especially, you know, letters that the president or the heads of the company have written about what their forecasts are going to be, where they're going into, what they've done, what their stock price has been over 10 years. Look at it. Is it continually going up? These are all important things to review before you invest in a stock you know i mean that's the main thing a lot of people invest in companies because their friends talk about it or they heard <laughs> about it on television they don't really sit down and you know even take a day to do some research on the company understand it figure out who's running it what their plan is where it's going and if it's right for them and I'm also very curious, uh, Mary, for you, like, how did you cultivate this? You know, like, it's not the conventional way that most of the time people would just buy and sell based on, you know, stock stock tips and whatsoever. How do you come cultivate this habit of really, you know, delving into the business? Is it because of Buffett's influence that you realize that it's definitely that is the right way to go? I would have to say yes. I mean... Because being around him, you know, you at the time you don't realize all that you're learning. You know, it's like all of us. Um, but just listening to him and, you know, he had 
Charlie Munger was this, I mean, the people that used to visit us, Charlie Munger, Catherine Graham, my goodness, you know, people that were fantastic, amazing people running incredible companies. Um, but yeah, that was great. I mean, those were incredible influences that I had and, you know, great, <laughs> great teachers, you know, if you will. How is Charlie in person? Is he uh, more chatty than he is at the Berkshire meeting? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely more chatty than he is at Berkshire. He's a really funny guy, Charlie. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of, I don't remember what the joke was he had about C's candy, but it was just funny. Yeah, Charlie's a very nice guy. Mm hmm it looks like there's a lot of thinking happening and then the words that you hear it's just the you know, top of the iceberg and sometimes i'd be curious to hear how did he come up with it and uh, warren is the one that fills in the gap and kind of interprets what charlie said and it's a fun interaction to watch every year and i i enjoy it there's some great highlights of those moments when one is finishing the other's one the uh, sentences sentences yeah yes that's right <laughs> So I'm thinking of the two great books that, that you wrote that had a big influence on me as an investor, the Buffetology and New Buffetology. And in one of them, well, in the second one, you mentioned how, how they differ. The one focuses on the business perspective. The other one is kind of the interaction with the Mr. Market and taking advantage of the pessimism in the market. Can you talk about that? It's It's fascinating how we spend a lot of time on finding out which ones are the quality businesses to own. And Buffett has a gift with Munger to pick them up at the right time when people get a little bit more pessimistic and, and they panic even. This is a matter of uh, discipline and patience. That's the thing. I mean, the discipline is finding the right company that you believe is has a great product or service that is run properly, that you know, you can look back on 10 years worth of earnings and you can, by 10 years worth of past earnings, you can pretty much predict that they're going to be doing about the same, if not better, some not, sometimes worse, but you can pretty, pretty much predict what's going to happen in the future, in the next 10 years. So I need quality business at the right time. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole idea. If you find the business that you in that you like and that you understand and you investigate the what the the people running it are what their plans are, there's so much online now that it didn't used to be that people can find out about companies and what they're doing that it's really important to do that research. You know, I really encourage people to, you know, understand what they're investing in. You don't just, you know, don't just give your money to somebody or invest in something you don't don't know. Yeah. I just want to add something that, you know, like just now I was watching another webinar about trading and I thought it quite interesting that a speaker talked about, you know, buy and hold approach is not really the right approach because, you know, it can take a long time for you to make profits. Mm -hmm. uh, and immediately I start to uh, think about the counter argument to that will be if you buy 
at the wrong price, of course, it's going to take a long time for you to, to profit. However, if you really use a buffered way of investing, like value investing, and you buy it only at a very good price, I think the way of breaking even and it becoming profitable actually become way shorter. And this is a very safe approach because, because you are able to buy a good business at a very undervalued price. So I personally still think that buy and hold approach is something still valid, valid to today. Uh, how about both of you? Oh, definitely. No. I mean, yeah, I, I don't buy something to sell it, to turn it around. You know, buy and hold is the only thing I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to call it the time arbitrage. There are very few people that have the, the patience to wait actually three, five or more years. And I wrote a, an article, a stock for a grandchild. We had a client asked us, can you pick one stock for a grandchild that was just born? And that question got me really thinking, what kind of a stock would I buy that with an intention of not selling for 20, 25 years, right? So obviously publicly traded. And Mary, you mentioned it has to have some sort of a record that it's, do, it's done well so far. So it has some good odds of success going forward. But at the same time, not too big so that the next 25 years, it can actually grow, right? If you buy a very mature business with no growth and you know, just a dividend, you can't really expect too much over the next 25 years. And it made me think, how about building a whole portfolio around stocks for a grandchild? And I know it's a big ask because very few people think in terms of a 25-year horizon. But if you do think that way, you might be one of very few people left in the room. And the advantage that you have if you think that way, I think it's it's pretty incredible. I don't know what your thoughts are. Stocks for a grandchild or a portfolio for a grandchild. Great idea. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's terrific. Uh, I mean, and it, it really makes one think about what you're buying much mm -hmm. more you know because you're talking about 25 years so a what's going to be around in 25 years well yeah yeah a good 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 measurement good way of thinking of it yeah Chloe, you like the idea yeah i love it i think right. that it's very wise and and you make investing seem so easy that you know like you are actually picking stock for your grandchildren, right? Mm -hmm. And and that idea is simple and profound. And, and the idea that you won't touch it or nobody will touch the money for 25 yeah. years, right? I think that's a very powerful commitment because I notice how investors put away some money, they invest it, but the minute it's invested, they have an idea how to spend it. Oh, they need a new kitchen, they need a new house, they need a new car. And then the money actually never really stays long enough invested. Mm -hmm. And having that idea that it's not needed for 25 years, I think, creates an opportunity. Mary, of all the businesses you've looked at and, and Warren talked about, what are some of the kinds or types of businesses that are worth owning over the long run? Because it's not everything out there. It's actually a, a pretty short list after a while when you think about it. And you mentioned some types of businesses with big brands or big presence or scale. What are big brands? And you can't say Apple isn't a great big brand. Coca-Cola. Hershey's, you know, it, you could go on and on. I mean, it just depends. The, you know, you want to invest in companies that obviously have been around, have got earnings over a long period of time. It doesn't have to have spectacular earnings, mm -hmm. but just the kind of earnings that 
every year you just see a little growth, growth. I mean, that's the kind of thing as a value investor, for me anyway, I want. I want that consistency, that that assurance that it's going to be around, it's going to continue to make money, and now to have a lot of risk attached to it. So I know other people want to make money quickly, <laughs> uh, but there's usually a lot of risk with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it kind of remind me of uh, recently we actually talked about it in our uh, Buffalo Online School webinar that uh, the difference between commodity type of business versus consumer monopoly. So right. uh, because Mary actually wrote in great detail in her book, uh, The Buffetology, right, that mm-hmm. she analyzed the differences between these two. And that's why she focused a lot on why Warren Buffett like consumer monopoly kind of businesses because it can give long-term consistency. Can we talk about mistakes? In investing, mistakes happen. Everybody goes into investing to make money, but not everything will go the way we think. How is Warren, what's he like when he makes a mistake or or Charlie, how do they process it? It, Can you tell or is it an emotional journey or do you just brush it off and they move on? What's it like? Well, they don't make too many, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but they don't they don't brush it off. I, I think they um they're at least Warren, you know, easy easy to uh to discuss it, to talk about it, mm-hmm. uh, to, to learn from it. He doesn't brush it off and move on. Mm-hmm. He really learns from it. But again very rare that they make mistakes because Warren, for instance, you know, he doesn't make decisions quickly. Mm-hmm. Everything is pretty, pretty researched. He really understands before he puts money into anything. And we all should do that. You know, we, we, we take so much time making the money. You should take at least some time investing the money. So many people, you know, take forever to make their money and then we'll just give it basically give it away give it to somebody or something that you know they haven't really really looked into and i that's what i say you know take time and really uh understand what you're investing in i'm very curious have you ever seen warren buffett getting you know a little bit emotional because of certain investment decisions that he made what that that was a mistake or like he was a little bit flustered in any way or, he, or was he always very calm and you know cheerful all the time <laughs> what was it was it the airlines i think they invested in i i think that really bothered him but um he didn't have enough invested in that to make a huge difference but so uh no, no, didn't really see him flustered. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the idea of looking back and then learning from the mistake. And Chloe and I spoke about it, how we all try to learn from other people's mistakes, but there's something about learning from your own mistakes. It's expensive usually, it's unpleasant, but I think the lesson sticks like any more than any other lesson. I think that's that's what I think about. And you pointed out that the dollars we invest, I call them precious dollars, because these are the dollars that after all the expenses, after all the taxes, after saying no to whatever purchase you had in mind, there's some money left. And I think to pause for a minute, as you said, Mary, 
and realize these are really precious dollars to be put to work. And it took a lot of effort, a lot of discipline to have something left. How do I invest it? I think that's that should take a little bit more time and a little bit more thought than just rushing in. Right. I think so many people, I mean, most people that I know invest based on others' uh, influence, mm -hmm. you know, friends who said, oh, I've invested in this and it's really great, or, oh, you should invest in that, you know, rather than really doing the research themselves, uh, you know, like I said, you take, you work so hard to make the money, work is hard to invest the money. I feel like uh, the neighbor getting richer theme repeats through history. <laughs> and that moment when we see that somebody living next door is making those incredible investments <laughs> in something that's really exciting at the time, it takes a lot to say, yeah. no, no, I will not participate in this. And I've seen some really seasoned investors that gave in and did some silly things in the last few years. And I'm not going to mention anything, but you know, all the cryptos and alternative investments that got people in real, real trouble it's very hard to say no when the, the neighbor is getting richer. Do you have some thoughts about that? But I feel like that's that's where the trouble starts. It's all about discipline and timing. I, mm -hmm. People want people want to make money fast. You know, mm -hmm. they they don't understand that it's much better and uh, um, better. But it's if you invest for over a long period of time and thinking about it as a long period of time, you know that you're not going to make spectacular returns quickly, mm -hmm. but over a long period of time, your investment is going to grow. I mean, that's that's the main thing. It's if something is growing in a positive direction, what what's wrong with that? You know, mm -hmm. rather than wanting this quick return, you know, so that's the main thing that you have to realize. It takes you a long time to make the money. Understand that you should, it takes a long time to invest the money, you know. And I can see that Mary, she's very contented with what she has, right? And, mm -hmm. and I think she's at peace with not, even though the return is not like tremendous, it's not overnight, she's totally okay because she is she is confident that long term her wealth is going to grow and she's contented that with compounding effect it's not going to be fantastically rich but then it's okay you know it's more than enough to make her have a comfortable lifestyle and i think that is a very beautiful state of mind that peace mm -hmm. yeah I like the the word peace and calm i feel like the best investors are those that can stay calm because these are the moments that Mary, you mentioned you can take advantage of some buying opportunities. And there are some trying times when, when the market is going in the direction that you don't enjoy, whether it's moving up too fast or dropping and staying calm through it. It's important. I wanted to come back for a second to the idea of being patient, how Warren discovered some businesses a long time ago, and he even made fun of himself, how it took him decades to buy into Coca-Cola for example, and I think the same thing with Apple. He was well aware that his grandkids were using iPads and he took his time to actually invest. Can you talk about that if you have some stories or recollections of him knowing the business very well but taking, him, taking his time to actually invest in it? 
Well, I think it's it's a great lesson. I mean, there you go as far as discipline goes. You know, he knew it was a great business. He was interested in it. The kids were using it. Even he was using it, certainly drinking Coke. He, he looked at the business carefully. He waited. He didn't just... And, you know, waiting sometimes is, is a great opportunity for a, a better buy, you know, a better price uh, on stock. So, you know, that's, you know, that's the discipline of understanding the great company, uh, you know, knowing, learning about the company, understanding it, and then being able to wait for a good price to pay. That takes a lot of discipline you know i mean that really does because you everyone always wants to you know spend their money put their money quickly into something you know rather than understanding you know what i know what i want to buy i love the company let me watch it let me see what the price is going to do and hopefully if the market takes a you know a big dive might be a time or something happens with the you know a lot of times there's a bad news phenomena i talk about it could mean nothing but it drops the price of a stock for some people it's intuitive to go in and buy at a lower price for some people it's the hardest thing to do and uh, i wonder what do you think is it something that you were born with or is it something that we cultivate and i share a story that i used to go grocery shopping with my grandma and she had such a instinct for price and value she would look for it for a deal she wanted to have the, the, the best she can find for the lowest price. And that's to me in value investing. Do you think we can all develop that kind of mindset or we're born with it? I think some people are probably born with it, but you definitely can develop it. I mean, it's it, again, it's discipline, you know, mm -hmm. it's understanding um, the way you should be investing your money rather than you know, just listening to other people or or the headlines moving you to invest in something, you know, you, re you really should be uh, spend that extra time, even though the price may fluctuate a little bit. The extra time of understanding a company you're buying and, you know, is invaluable. Really, you, you need to know that. I feel like it's never been harder to filter out the noise. You open your phone or your laptop and in the corner, unless you turn off all the notifications, something pops up, the NASDAQ is up or down and and all, all the little things are moving and, and there are tickers. You have to, I have to, I got a new laptop just you know this week and I had to turn off all the notifications because things pop up. It's so hard to stay disciplined and patient in a world where I call it poking. I feel like my brain gets poked all the time with all kinds of, this is good, this is bad, I should act on it. What's what's your policy in this world of trying to stay focused? I don't want to say I don't listen to a lot, but you know, I I I do stay pretty uh, focused. You know, I just do certain things. I I read, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal or I read the newspaper, um, listen to a bit of news. Everything that I've really ever, I've never invested in a company, for instance, that I never heard of or that somebody told me about. Mm -hmm. Always been absolutely companies I, I know, I understand. But 
you know, you, you should look at the companies. Everyone before they invest in anything really needs to understand the company. Look at the price. How has it been for the last 10 years? What are the predictions going forward? There's so much more that you can find out about companies nowadays. Mm-hmm. Because everything is online that it's, it's just ridiculous for people not to be informed about what they're investing in. It's just, it's impossible not to be able to find out so much information nowadays. I'm curious about those times when it's really hard for value investors. And in your book, you mentioned the year 1999. I remember that time when companies without profits, companies without business were flying really high. We kind of had a repeat of that in 2000, well, 2021, different, but similar in some ways. And value investing fell out of favor in 1999, especially. And you tell a story of of a value uh, investor broker that would recommend stocks based on fundamentals, how he basically had to quit his job because nobody was listening to him. And it reminds me of a story that one of my mentors told me about the Great Depression. So he himself started in the business in 1969, but got to meet people that worked in the Great Depression. And one of the people he worked with told him a story of um, a chicken farm that this particular investor decided to buy. He sold all these uh, shares in 1929 or 28 and bought a chicken farm in Vermont because he said that the market makes no sense to him. And Buffett did it a couple of times too. And he said in 1968, 69, the market doesn't make sense to him. How do we make it through those periods as value investors when the market makes no sense and the best thing we can do is buy that chicken farm and wait it out. <laughs> I don't know about the chicken farm. <laughs> <laughs> patience. I mean, value investors have to have a lot of patience because the whole idea is waiting for that time, whether whatever brings that time around, that opportunity around, whether it's a recession or whether it's a one-time, you know, sometimes a one-time mistake in a company Mm -hmm. and really be great for a purchase. Like uh, new Coca-Cola didn't do very well, Mm -hmm. you know, and I haven't, really looked at it but i bet if you did if you looked at coca-cola stock when new cola came out stock price probably fell uh, Mm -hmm. during that period and that might be an opportunity to buy so you know knowing what you want to buy knowing the great companies that are out there and then waiting for the right price really is important i mean those are uh, fundamental things for a a value investor. You point out something interesting, which I would call a self-inflicted wound, like a launch of a product or a product recall. Uh, There are restaurant uh, stocks out there that had issues with some food quality and they had to really rethink how they source. I'm not going to mention specific companies, but they seem like self-inflicted wounds. And if you know what the source of the problem is, usually you need a few years and you can fix it. It looks very dramatic when you look at quarterly earnings, but you know that in three, five years, there's some good odds that they can work it through. And then there are the macro situations that you mentioned when the whole market sells off and some businesses that you wanted to buy now are available at much lower prices. I kind of like like the self-inflicted more because it's one company, it's easy to identify, and the macro sometimes can be so overwhelming, like in March of 2020 when the whole market corrected. 
do you have some thoughts about it? How, how, how to act in moments like this, like March of 2020, when the whole market corrects and it looks like there's so many more things you should be buying because stocks are at, you know, five, 10, 20 year low. Well, I think you have to always, uh, you know, you kind of have to know what you are, uh, what you are, what you understand, what companies you understand, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't want to buy anything that I don't completely understand, mm -hmm. you know, what's because I hear about it or the, the news is is excellent. No, I think that if you if you make a list of things that you really understand, companies that you, you like, and then follow those companies, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And then sure, when when there's a market correction, a great time to step in most likely and buy because everything is a lot cheaper. Or like I said, sometimes there's a, something happens to a company. I, I don't, I would imagine I'm right, but I bet you when new Coca-Cola came out, the Coke stock definitely was not doing great at that time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's certain things that happen in, even in big stalwart companies um, that can give you a buying opportunity. I like that. Were you surprised that Buffett ended up buying Apple, a tech stock? No. No. No, because, I mean, uh, by the time he bought it, it, it you know, I, I, he understood it. Everybody understood Apple. It wasn't mm -hmm. like, it wasn't the beginning of, you know, Apple. It was like, this is a, a consumer monopoly this is a it's not going anywhere uh yeah no, it was I, I i still remember back then mm -hmm. it was um like that was many years back when warren first bought apple and at that time mary was actually having a webinar uh, with us and together mm -hmm. with sean and like you both were debating at that time and then sean was like no i think like um uh, maybe Warren Buffett, like he he mistook it, and that's why he bought Apple because it's a tech store. And I still clearly remember Mary said that, oh no, uh, it's more than a tech store. It's like a consumer staple, right? <laughs> like everybody needs to carry it. And and that was a very, very refreshing perspective because that was so many years back. Now, if you think about it, really Apple becomes a consumer staple. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a very foresighted statement many years back. In my opinion, yeah. Very much so. But I think all those labels, and, and I had uh, Chris Mayer who wrote a 100 Beggars book. I'm sure you've, you've heard of it. And we had a conversation about labels, how we label stocks. that This is a tech stock or this is an oil stock or this is a consumer stock. And sometimes those labels can get us in trouble. And sometimes we might not consider something because it's a tech stock. But I feel like those labels are all in motion even mm -hmm. Uh, you know the categories change and the com companies that were tech now are communication or something else so they move around so being open to what the business is about as you said mary just looking at what is it really about what are they selling who is it buying who's buying it and why and realizing that some of those companies are really consumer facing consumer companies they just happen to be selling a device instead of a toothpaste or a can of <laughs> carbonated <laughs> drink 
Mary, I have one last question for you. I'm always curious about a definition of success. How do you think about it? Is it a, a journey, a destination? How do you know you're on the right track? What What's your definition? Oh, wow. I mean, I think, you know, personally, for me, my greatest success is my relationship with my family, with your children, with your friends, you know, there's nothing, money, you know, it's an old statement, money can't buy love, money can't buy that. So, you know, I think if you're personally successful with your life and what your relationships are, that's really important. Um, money affords you a lifestyle. I mean, and, and that's really all. I mean, you know, even if you're super wealthy and you what what does it really give you? You can buy a bigger house and the best place and you know, it doesn't really give you anything much more than, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, those things so um yeah i guess that's that's what it means to me family relationships and that yeah. kind of fulfillment money's just a means to many ends i think that's good to remember and i feel like the investing game the people that stay in investing for a lifetime it's not really the money that motivates them. Maybe at the beginning they're intrigued by it that way, but it's an intellectual pursuit. I can see how you're enjoying the the search and the discovery. I like to think of it as being a detective that tries to find out what's the next interesting idea I should consider. And, and I think that's what keeps Warren and Charlie going all those years. I think they're past the point of the, the, mm -hmm. the money is a motivator of any kind. I think it's they're just intrigued what else is out there they should be looking at, the curiosity that's behind it, and it's fun to see. Mary, thank you so much for today. Chloe, thank you for organizing it. What a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you so much, Bogumi. And uh, we really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot from both you and Mary as well. Oh, it's, it's quite an inspiration, and your books are wonderful. I'm going to include all the links in the notes. And I think they're, I was telling Chloe, they're wonderful for somebody that's just discovering investing, but I think they're also a great refresher for people that have been in the business to remember what's really important. And that's how I look at them. Oh, thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Chloe. Thank you, guys. Thank you. you were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question what it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogumil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.